This is part two of a three-part series on the origins of Buddhism. The previous episode was all about the philosophical and political scene in the regions of ancient Bihar, then known as Magadha, and the overall northern India-Ganges region. We also looked at Jainism as well as the Vedic area more broadly. In this episode, I want to understand who the Buddha was, the man. I also want to look at what his philosophy was, what he taught, and what we understand was early, assuming, authentic Buddhist teachings. Siddharth Gautama, born in Lumbini, then in the Shakya Republic. Lumbini today is in southern Nepal. The Shakya were a tribe that controlled a region of Iron Age India, inhabiting the area in Magadha, situated in present-day southern Nepal and northern India, near the Himalayas. The Shakyas formed an independent oligarchic republican state known as the Sakya Gan Sang. These Gan Sangs or Gan Raj were a type of clan structure. Gan in the Pali language means tribe and Sang is simply a gathering and it is in common usage in modern Hindi today as it was in ancient Sanskrit then. The Shakyas were an eastern sub-Himalayan ethnic group who were considered outside of the Arya birth and of supposedly mixed origin, possibly part Aryan and part indigenous. The laws of Manu treats them as being non-Aryan. In the previous episode, I mentioned the Mahajan Pads, that 16 kingdoms or oligarchic republics that existed in northern ancient India from about the 6th to the 4th centuries BCE. Reminder also that the 6th to the 5th centuries BCE is often regarded as a major turning point in early Indian history. During this period, India's first large cities arose after the demise of the Indus Valley Civilization. It was also the time of the rise of the Smarna movements that included Buddhism and Jainism, which challenged the religious orthodoxy of the Vedic period. The Buddhist scripture, known as the Angurtur Nikaya, at several places gives a list of 16 great tribes or nations at the time. These were Anga, Asaka, Avanti, Chedi, Gandhara, Kashi, Cambodia, Kosla, Kuru, Magad, Mala, Macha, Panchala, Surnesna, Virji, Basta. The Shakya Republic wasn't one of the 16. Kapilvastu was the capital of the Shakya Republic. The modern location of the site is either in northern Uttar Pradesh now or actually in southern Nepal. Bimbisara was the king of Magad, supposedly between 545 and 492 BC. Though, according to the Purnas, Bimbisara ruled Magad for a period of 28 to 38 years, Sinhalese chronicles date his reign to be of 52 years. He was part of the Haramka dynasty. Indeed, he was the first monarch of that dynasty. According to Jain traditions, he frequently visited Mahavira, seeking 
answers to his queries. According to Buddhist tradition, he is also known for his cultural achievements and was a great friend and protector of the Buddha. Bimbisara, it is understood, built the city of Rajgir, which is in Bihar today. He, Bimbisara, was succeeded to the throne by his son, Ajashastru, who, by the way, is thought to have assassinated his father. Gotham was born in Lumbini and raised in Kapilvastu, as I have said. According to Buddhist tradition, he obtained his enlightenment in a town called Bodh Gaya, which is now in Bihar. He gave his first sermon in Sarnath, which is now in Uttar Pradesh, and died in Kushinagar, also in Uttar Pradesh. According to these accounts, at the birth of Prince Siddharth Gautam, the Buddha-to-be, Brahmin priests predicted that he would become a world teacher or a world ruler. To prevent his son from turning into a religious person, Prince Siddharth's father and Raja of the Sakya clan, Zutorjna, did not allow him to see death or suffering and distracted his son with luxury. During his childhood, the young prince had a meditative experience which made him realize the suffering, inherent in all existence. He grew up and experienced a comfortable youth, but he continued to ponder about religious questions, and when he was 29 years old, he saw for the first time in his life what became known in Buddhism as the Four Great Sights, an old man, a sick person, and a corpse, as well as an aesthetic that inspired him. Shortly thereafter, Prince Siddharth woke up at night and saw his servants lying in unattractive poses, and that shocked him as well. Moved by all of these things he had experienced, the prince decided to leave the palace behind in the middle of the night against the will of his father, to live the life of a wandering aesthetic, leaving behind his just-born son Rahul and his wife Yashodra. He travelled to the river with his charioteer and horse, and then cut off his hair. Leaving his servant and horse behind, he journeyed into the woods and changed into a monk's robes. Later, he actually met King Bimbisara, who attempted to share his royal power with the former prince, but the now ascetic Gautama refused. Buddha's lifetime coincided with the flourishing of influential Samasana schools of thought. That included, amongst other things, Jainism and later Buddhism. Samasana simply means one who labors, toils, or exalts themselves for some higher purpose. Samanic traditions have a diverse range of beliefs, ranging from accepting or denying the concept of soul, fatalism to free will, idealization of extreme asceticism to that of family life, where addressed to complete nudity in daily social life, strict nonviolence and vegetarianism. No written records about Gautama were found in his lifetime or from one or two centuries later. However, from the middle of the 3rd century BCE, several edicts of the King Ashoka, who reigned from 269 to 232 BCE, mentioned the Buddha and particularly Ashoka's Lumbini pillar inscription commentates the emperor's pilgrimage to the city as the Buddha's birthplace, calling him the Buddha or Shakaya Muni, thus establishing the existence of a written Buddhist tradition at least by the time of the Maurya 
empire. The sources which present a complete picture of the life of Gotham are a variety of different and sometimes conflicting traditional biographies. These include the Buddha Pratya, the Lalit Vistara, the Sutra Mahavastu, and the Nakantakata. Of these, the Buddha Kristara is the earliest full biography and epic poem written by the poet Argivosa in the first century CE. In the earliest Buddhist texts, the Buddha is not depicted as possessing omniscience, nor is he depicted as being an eternal transcendent. Ideas of the Buddha's omniscience are found only later, in the Mahanya Sutras and later Pali commentaries or texts such as the Mahavastu. According to later biographies, his mother Maya, Sudarshana's wife, was a Kolyan prince. Legend has it that on the night Siddhartha was conceived, Queen Maya dreamt that a white elephant with six white tusks entered her right side, and ten months later Siddhartha was born. As was the Shakya tradition, when his mother, the queen, became pregnant, she left Kapilwastu for her father's kingdom to give birth. However, her son is said to have been born on the way, at Lumbini, in a garden beneath a salt tree. The earliest Buddhist sources state that the Buddha was born to an aristocratic Kashta family called Gautama. Early texts suggest that Gautama was not familiar with the dominant religious teachings of his time until he left on his religious quest, which is said to have been motivated by the existential concern for the human condition. That, as I've said already, goes back to the four sights. That being an old man, a sick person, a corpse, and the aesthetic that inspired him. The Great Renunciation or Great Departure is a traditional term for the departure of Gautam Buddha from his palace at Kapilvastu to live the life of an aesthetic. It is called the Great Renunciation because it is regarded as a great sacrifice. The story of Prince Siddhartha's renunciation illustrates the conflict between lay duties and religious life, and it shows how even the most pleasurable lives are still filled with suffering. Prince Siddhartha was moved with a strong, somewhat religious agitation about the transcendent nature of life, but he believed there was a divine alternative to be found, found in this very life and accessible to the honest seeker. Apart from the sense of religious agitation, he was motivated by a deep empathy with human suffering. The Nikaya texts narrate that the ascetic Gautama practiced under two teachers of yogic meditation. According to other early Buddhist texts, after realizing that meditative tanya was the right path to awakening, Gautama discovered what was called the middle way, a path of moderation away from the extremes of indulgence and self-mortification, or the noble eightfold path, which I will talk about later. His break with aestheticism is said to have led to his five companions to abandon him, since they believed that he had abandoned his search and become undisciplined. One interesting and popular story tells of how he accepted milk and rice pudding from a village girl named Sujata. Following his decision to stop extreme aesthetic practices, Gautama sat down to meditate with the determination not to get up until fully awakened. 
This event was said to have occurred under a pipal or Indian fig tree known as the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya in modern Bihar. After taking aestheticism to its extremes, the Buddha realized that his had not helped him reach awakening. At this point, he remembered a previous meditative experience he had had as a child sitting under a tree while his father worked. This memory leads him to understand that tanya, meditation, is path to awakening. And the texts then depict the Buddha achieving all four tanyas, followed by what became known as the three higher knowledges, resulting in his awakening. Gautama thus became known as the Buddha, or the Awakened One. The title indicates that unlike most people who are asleep, a Buddha is understood to have woken up to the true nature of reality and sees the world as it is. A Buddha has achieved liberation, also called nirvana, which is seen as the extinguishing of the fires of desire, hatred, and ignorance that keep the cycle of suffering and rebirth going. According to some texts from the Pali Canon, at the time of his awakening, he realized complete insight into the Four Noble Truths, which I will get to in a minute, thereby attaining liberation from Samarsa, the endless cycle of rebirth. The Buddha sat for seven days under the Bodhi tree, feeling the bliss of deliverance. The Pali texts also report that he continued to meditate and contemplated various aspects of the Dharma while living by the river, such as dependent origin, the five spiritual faculties, and suffering. Immediately after his awakening, the Buddha hesitated on whether or not he should teach the Dharma to others. He was concerned that humans were overpowered by ignorance, greed, and hatred, that it would be difficult for them to recognize the path which is subtle, deep, and hard to grasp. However, the god Brahma Samapati convinced him, arguing that at least some with a little dust in their eyes will understand it. The Buddha relented and agreed to teach. At the end of the rainy season, when the Buddha's community had grown to around 60 awakened monks, he instructed them to wander off on their own, teach and ordain people into the community for the welfare and benefit of the world at large. For the remaining 40 to 45 years of his life, the Buddha is said to have traveled in the Gangatic Plains in what is now Uttar Pradesh, Bihar and southern Nepal, teaching a wide variety of peoples, including nobles, servants, aesthetics, householders, murderers, and even cannibals. The Buddha's wanderings ranged from Kambasi on the Yamuna to Kampa and from Kapalvastu to Urvela. This covers an area of about 600 by 300 kilometers. His Sangha enjoyed the patronage of the kings of Kosla and Madhat, and he thus spent a lot of time in their respective capitals. The formation of a parallel order of female monastics was another important part of the growth of the Buddha's community. According to all major versions surveyed, Buddha's stepmother is initially turned down by the Buddha after requesting ordination for her and some other women. 
Mahajapati and her followers then shave their hair, don robes and begin following the Buddha on his travels. Buddha is eventually convinced by Anand, his companion, to grant ordination to her on her acceptance of the eight conditions called Guru Dharmas, which focus on the relationship between the new order of nuns and the monks. After the first 20 years of his teaching career, the Buddha seems to have slowly settled in Sarvavati, the capital of the kingdom of Khosla, spending most of his later years in this city. In his later years, the Buddha's fame grew and he was invited to important royal events such as the inauguration of the new council and the hall of the Shakanias. As the Buddha continued to travel and teach, he also came into contact with members of other Samarana sects. There is evidence from the early texts that the Buddha encountered some of these figures and critiqued their doctrines, and this would be the Jains particularly. The early texts also depict the elderly Buddha as suffering from back pain. Several texts depict him denigrating teachings to his chief disciples since his body now needed more rest. However, it is believed the Buddha continued teaching well into his old age. One of the most troubling events during the Buddha's old age was Devadatta's schism. Early sources speak of how the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, attempted to take over leadership of the order and then left the Sangha with several Buddhist monks and formed a rival sect. The Pali texts also depict Devadatta as plotting to potentially kill the Buddha, but those plans eventually fail. All the major early Buddhist texts depict Devadatta as a decisive figure who attempted to split the Buddhist community, but they disagree on what issues he disagreed the Buddha on. The Mahapirani Panna Sutta depicts Buddha's last year as a time of war. It begins with Ajasastru's decision to make war on the Vijayan Federation, leading him to send a minister to ask the Buddha for advice. The Buddha responds by saying, that the Vijayans can be expected to prosper as long as they do seven things. And then he applies those seven principles to the Buddhist Sangha, showing that he is concerned about its future welfare. The Buddha says that the Sangha will prosper as long as they hold regular and frequent assemblies, meet in harmony, do not change the rules of training, honor their superiors who were ordained before them, do not fall prey to worldly desires, remain devoted to forest hermitages, and preserve their personal mindfulness. He then gives further lists of important virtues to be upheld by the Sangha. After travelling and teaching some more, the Buddha ate his last meal, which he had received as an offering from a blacksmith. Falling violently ill, Buddha instructed his attendant Anand to convince the blacksmith named Kunda that the meal eaten at his place had nothing to do with his death and that his meal would be a source of the greatest merit as it provided the last meal for a Buddha. The Triveda tradition generally believes that the Buddha was offered some kind of pork, while the Mahayana traditions believe that the Buddha consumed some sort of truffle or other mushroom. These may reflect the different traditional views on Buddhist vegetarianism and the percepts for monks and nuns. Modern scholars also disagree on this topic, arguing both for pig's flesh or some kind of plant or mushroom that pigs like to eat. Whatever the case, none of the sources which mention the last meal attribute the Buddha's sickness to the meal itself. 
After the meal with Kunda, the Buddha and his companions continued traveling until he was too weak to continue and had to stop at Kushinagar, where Anand had a resting place prepared at a grove of salsa trees. The Buddha's final words are reported to have been, All Sankara's decay strive for the goal with diligence. And with those words, the man who was to influence millions of future followers passed away. So what is Buddhist philosophy as per the Buddha and early Buddhist thought? Well, there are nine things that I think are the main tenets. Number one is the middle way. Number two, the four noble truths. Number three, the noble eightfold path. Number four, the four dhanyas or meditations. Number five, the three marks of existence. Number six, the five aggregates of clinging. Number seven, dependent origination. Number eight, karma, i.e. rebirth. And number nine, nirvana. And I'm going to go through each one of these. The middle way refers to the Buddhist understanding of practical life, avoiding the extremes of self-denial and self-indulgence, as well as the view of reality that avoids the extreme positions of eternalism and annihilationism. The four noble truths are the truths of the noble ones, the truths or realities for the spiritually worthy ones. The noble ones, by the way, are the ones who gained insight into the true nature of existence and have achieved nirvana. So what are these four noble truths? Number one is duk, i.e. suffering. It's an innate characteristic of existence in the realm of samosa. Number two is samunda, or origin, or arising. Of this duk, which arises or comes together with tanha, or craving. Number three is nirota. The cessation or ending of this duk can be attained by the renouncement or letting go of this tanha. And number four is marga, i.e. path, also known as the noble eightfold path. This is the path leading to renouncement of tanha, action of duk or dukkha. These four noble truths are traditionally identified as the first teaching given by the Buddha and considering one of the most important teachings in Buddhism. The Noble Eightfold Path is an early summary of the path of Buddhist practices leading to liberation from samarsa, the painful cycle of rebirth in the form of nirvana. The Eightfold Path consists of eight practices, right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, i.e. meditative absorption or union. Dhyan is the training of the mind, commonly translated as meditation, to withdraw the mind from the automatic responses to sense impressions and leading to a state-perfect mental peace and awareness. What are the three marks of existence? They are characteristics of all existence and all beings. Namely, impermanence, non-self, and unsatisfactoriness, or suffering. That humans are subject to delusion about the three marks 
that this delusion results in suffering and that the removal of that delusion results in the end of suffering is a central theme in the Buddhist Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path. The five aggregates of clinging are the five material and mental factors that take part in the rise of craving and clinging. They are also explained as the five factors that constitute and explain a sentient being's person and personality. These five are Number one, four. Number two, sensations or feelings. Three, perceptions. Four, mental activity. And five, consciousness. Dependent origin or dependent arising states that all dharmas arise in dependence upon other dharmas. If this exists, that exists. If this ceases to exist, that also ceases to exist. The basic principle is that all things arise in dependence upon other things. Then there's karma, meaning action or doing. In the Buddhist tradition, karma refers to action driven by intention, which leads to future consequences. Those intentions are the determining factor in the kind of rebirth and samarsa, the cycle of rebirth and rebirth. Then there is nirvana. It is a concept in all Indian religions, just like karma is. It's in Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and Sikhism. That represents the ultimate state of salvation and release, the liberation from dukkha and samarsa. Nirvana is synonymous with moksha and mukti. You may or may not be Buddhist. You may or may not care for Buddhism. But it is unquestionable that here we have an individual who did a ton of tapasya, meaning a lot of work and effort to getting to the knowledge that he got to. It is not an accident that some of this information, some of this knowledge, some of this understanding is still in use today. These words like nirvana and karma are still in use today. No matter what you may think of the ultimate philosophy or where you sit on the fence this way or that way, it is wise to listen to someone who went through all the trouble and effort to get us this knowledge and information. Next episode, my plan is to talk about the spread of Buddhism beyond northern India. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. 